1: We have Nick Ligomero on the call. And uh, Nick, I really appreciate your time. But Nick is known as the note guy. And we're going to delve into this. Uh, And in fact, we've only talked spoken to a couple other people regarding this topic. But I always find it fascinating how this works. And in fact, I've tried it a couple times myself just to turn around a pretty dog of a a rental unit or, or two. Um, and it's it it really is kind of an eye opening experience how e- actually it's a lot easier than people think it is. Um, but uh, what can be accomplished with this strategy? So I really appreciate your help, Nick. But I'm going to point people right off the bat. Uh, you can follow along and and find more resources and information at usanotepro.com. That's it. So mm-hmm. really appreciate it, Check Nick. Check it out. Awesome. So, you know, I, am I'm always fascinated. Like, how did you find your way to carrying paper like this?
2: Well, it's, uh, let's just say I got, I got, I got lucky at the end of the day. I mean, long story short, and I've told the story on uh, numerous times and I don't want to get into the long version of it. Basically, I had a property that I, uh, that I was able to acquire, um, that had a, had, had some debt on it and I didn't have, uh, I knew it was worth more than I was going to pay for it. I didn't think I could sell it for cash for what it was. It was it was a cheap house back this is 15 years ago and in in a, in a in in Dallas, Texas in a when you could buy when there was houses you could get for that were worth $50,000. Now that same house is two or three times that amount it doesn't exist any longer. But the the seller wanted $25,000 cuz that's what she owed on the property and I knew it was worth more than that. <clears throat> I didn't think I uh, this is well when I was really getting into wholesaling, just starting out, and I thought it was worth about fifty thousand dollars. And I had a buyer uh, that uh, somebody that helped me, and they, I said, "Do you think if I could get if you have somebody that's got twenty five thousand dollars down payment, and I will finance the rest?" And uh, instead of what I probably should have done is, I said, "Hey, do you know somebody that's got fifty thousand dollars cash?" I got a great deal, and taking that transactional cash from the from the from the from the property, and put it in my pocket like most wholesalers do, right? Mm-hmm. I, something just clicked at me at the time to say, "Well, I don't need all that cash now." I didn't think at the time somebody really had fifty thousand dollars cash, and so that's what I did. I got I I, uh, I got twenty five thousand dollars down. I financed. Uh, I think I, the net the net number was like twenty two thousand on that. I paid off the seller. Paid a little bit of a fee to the uh, to the uh, person that brought me the deal, and I wrote my first note. And then from there, it just has evolved into. you know, I've done over seven hundred plus. I don't. I, I stopped counting at seven hundred. Creative financing structured deals. Um, I built a whole business around, and actually sold the business uh, to a to a bank back in 2018. So I might not be the biggest and the most knowledgeable in this in the space, but. I, I think that I've done enough to, to really understand what is what's the value proposition for me and that's what we talk about today is really talk about how to be the bank right because ultimately that is, that's what this is about and for me being the bank is about control not owning right you talked about having um, uh, rental properties where you were the landlord well where you're the landlord as a in a tenant landlord relationship, I'm the bank, I'm the lean Lord, right? I call it the lean Lord. I control the property through the through the lien and that's what I choose to do. Because at the end of the day, you go to any city in, in America and you go downtown and you look up, they're all names of banks on the top of the buildings. They're not anybody, anybody else's names, but pretty much banks and insurance companies. And I learned a long time ago, if it was good enough for the bank, it's probably good enough for most investors and that's sort of how, that's sort of the model I, I follow. And I love it. Uh, I have, it's about as passive of an investment strategy that I know of. And, um, and once you figure out and sort of crack the code and really be able to put a system and a process around it, it's really, it's really quite enjoyable to say the least, not to have to deal with, with tenants um, any longer. Not that that was never my, really my model, but I've heard stories to say the least.
1: Yeah, well, no. What what makes this appealing, especially with some single family homes? I mean, to be frank, unless you're buying a newer property, that's all been that's been updated and repaired and and ready to go, uh, it just takes the refrigerator going out or s- some small thing, and it it destroys your cash flow for a year or more.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, people so can you, make the argument about a depreciation. Well, and depreciation is nice, and everybody can use some level of depreciation. But I just say, be, treat it like a like a portfolio, an investment portfolio. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't put them all in the fix and flip basket. Don't put them all in the wholesaling basket. Don't put them all in the in the uh, the you know the cash flow from a rental perspective basket. Because uh, you need a little bit of everything really to really put together the best return on your investment of energy time and effort in, in my opinion. And that's sort of what we do.
1: Yeah. Well, you're basically saying real estate diversification. We've heard that diversification from growing up, you know, just in a different, but it's it's
2: funny how few people actually do it in the real estate space. It's really quite, it's really quite amazing. Either you focus just on wholesaling or you only want to do the Burr model or method, or you're only going to be, uh, you know, Buy and hold uh, buy and hold investor. I mean, those are all great strategies, and you can make money doing any and all of those. At the end of the day, for me, especially in where we are in today's economy, what we're coming through, the un the, the uncertainty of the future, I like taking, I like dealing in known quantities, okay? As much as I possibly can, especially if I'm dealing with my own capital or if I'm using somebody else's money. I want to get in and get out of the deal as soon as I possibly can, take the money and run and figure out how to take that profit that I get. And then I might become a little bit more, um, uh, you know, less conservative with the investment strategy. Might be a little, might get into something a little bit more speculative, but that's only because I've made, I've already made that money. Not that I'm, I'm, I'm jeopardizing my, my, my capital stack to, to make something else happen. I think that's a dangerous proposition.
1: Well, you know, if you don't mind, you know, like I said, a lot of this is going to be relatively new to to most of my listeners here. Could we take a take a moment and just kind of walk through how this process works from like finding, identifying the property, how you set up the creative financing, how you sell the sell the note or the paper to a buyer, like how does that how does that all look?
2: Yeah, so let's so really um and we can get deals a lot of different ways, but the ways that I that I see most of this happening is you can the deal can either come from a from a wholesaler. So if you're a wholesaler, that's one way that this deal could could manifest. Or if you're a landlord, a tired landlord, that's another way. So they're both a little bit different in themselves. But you always got to start with the deal. So I talk to wholesalers all the time, and I and I educate them on. Um, the model is very simple in a wholesaler's mind, right? You're gonna go buy a property and put it under contract, or you're gonna maybe not even buy it, you're gonna put it under contract for X, you're gonna add a fee, and you're gonna sell it for Y, right? Mm-hmm. And depending on what formula you use, let's just use uh, a maximum allowable offer of 80%, right? So if your maximum allowable offer is 80% and it's a and it's a hundred and Uh, $50,000 value, well, then you're going to get that for $120,000, right? That's your maximum offer. That's including your repairs and uh, um, cost of capital and whatever that makes it up. So the question always becomes, and I always ask the question, what happens when you have a seller that needs $130,000 total. So maybe you take out the repairs, but they, they they need more than what you're willing to pay because it's outside of your maximum allowable offer. Say there's no repairs needed. Okay. Because math is much simpler this way. Mm-hmm. So you're at 120 and they need 130. So how do you make that deal work if you're a wholesaler? It, the, the math doesn't work because it's, very rarely you're ever going to have a seller come to, come to the table and write a check for $10,000 take, to take their house off their hands. It used to happen back in the day when there were short sales, but those those days are all over. So you got to be able to figure out how to get to that seller's asking price, right? So by, being, by knowing that you can pay a little bit more for that property because you're going to exit out of it differently than a fix and flip model, it just opens up the, the opportunity to get more deals. So let's go, let's just be a little bit more specific in the example. Um, what we do is so we take this property down, and I most of the stuff I'm doing right now is more because um, of the way the the market is right now. We're doing a lot less construction and remodeling than we have in the last 15 years. Okay, um, because buyers are are the sell. It's a seller's market, and buyers are are such in need of properties. They're willing to take. Deals or the buy properties that that don't need that aren't completely remodeled and upgraded. They're perfectly livable, you know. They still got Grandma's 1970 kitchen in it, but they're willing to buy it today and leave Grandma's, you know, avocado green kitchen in there, and knowing that they can own that house, and then they'll figure out a way to make that the remodel that kitchen. We're seeing a lot of that right now. Beggars can't be choosers, and there's a lot of buyers that are baying to buy the house. So what we do is we just model this out. And what I do is I write, um, depending on how you can acquire it many different ways, you can acquire it with cash, you can acquire it with hard money, private capital, or you can even buy it uh, from the seller with terms, right? Sometimes the owners own it free and clear. These are all ways that you can take it down. What we do, though, is that when we exit out of it, instead of selling it to a retail buyer, like a traditional fix and flip model would... We sell it on seller financing. We sell it on terms. Okay. So we go find an owner finance buyer um, and we're not going to get into the weeds on all the Dodd-Frank and safe Act, because all that can be underwritten through an RMLO, which is a residential mortgage loan originator. They're in a lot of different states and just, it's just, a, just an outsource, right? So um, know that they're available to work on your behalf. And then I write a first and a second lien. So let's just take a $200,000 uh, property. I just did one. I don't know if I have my sheet here or any. I know, but I know the numbers. So, I two hundred thousand dollars, so I write a. So, what I do, I write a seventy-five percent first, which in this case would be one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and then I, I get ten percent down, so that's twenty thousand dollars, right? And then I the, then I have a second lien of thirty thousand dollars. So, one fifty for the first, thirty for the second, ten and twenty for the down adds up to two hundred thousand dollars, which is the sales price. So that 150 thousand dollar lien that's in a first that's that's um, written at a 75 percent loan to value. I can sell that loan immediately, that lien immediately, that note, to a note buyer and I can get, let's just say I get 145 for it. I got a discount a little bit because it's not seasoned. But my cost basis on that deal is let's say it's 150, okay? So I sold it for 145 but I owed 150 cuz that's what I borrowed to do the deal. So, but I got $20,000 in cash down payment from the buyer, right? So the net effect of that of that transaction is actually the debt is gone cuz I paid off the debt. The first lien is gone cuz I sold it to a note buyer and the profit on that deal for me in this model is a $15,000 in cash. Transactionally, which is more than a wholesale deal most of the time these days. And then I also got a free and clear uh, $30,000 second lien at like 10.5% interest amortized over 30 years. And that value of that note's close to 100, almost $100,000 in perpetuity. And that's the model that I do. But what did I actually gain out of this? And this is the important thing I think we need to, we need to explain. Is that i had to do a little bit more work to get to that point but i'm getting paid for a long longer period of time but i have but i have zero risk because all my cost basis is wiped out i paid off all my debt um i got some cash today right even fifteen thousand dollars is not a not a lot of money but it's not a little money i mean when you do it on a two hundred thousand dollar house i'm gonna get cash flow so $30,000 cash flow on a, a 10.5% interest is probably $260 a month cash flow. I'm going to get that in, in perpetuity for up, up to 30 years on the term. And then I'm also going to get the, the the payout. So even though I wrote that note for 30 years, the likelihood that that note performs for 30 years is highly unlikely. What will usually happen to somebody will sell or they'll end up refinancing or some other event will happen, and let's just say that's ten years from now. Okay, so I'll make two, Say I make two hundred and fifty dollars a month for the next ten years. Okay, so and the, I'm just I'm just w- 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 winging these numbers. I don't I don't have my financial calculator in front of me. Well, let's just say it's two fifty a month times one hundred and twenty months. That's another thirty thousand dollars in cash flow. Okay, but if you look at an amortization table at that, depending on what the rate the interest rate was the payoff is probably still going to be about another twenty-three dollars to $25,000. maybe might even be a little more. So then when they call the bank, well, who's the bank? Well, I'm the bank because I'm the one holding that second lien note. They're going to ask for a payoff. I'm going to run the amortization table. I'm going to give them the payoff. And then when they refinance or sell that house, I'm going to get another check for another, call it $25,000. So that one transaction gave me $15,000 cash today, transactional. It gave me $30,000 in cash flow at $250 a month over 10 years. And it gives me another lump sum payout at some point in the future, somewhere in the $25,000 range. Sure. So that's the quick version of it.
1: <laughs> well, that that's quick, a heck of an elevator pitch. I tell you that, you know, well, that just... I don't
2: even tell an elevator pitch, man. So, <laughs> but it's, it's not as hard to do It's you know, Here's what I'll say. It's not that hard to do if you understand what the components of the deal are. The mm-hmm. beauty of the model, in my opinion, is that you don't have to do any of this yourself, right? There's a there's a third party RMLO that will do the underwriting for the borrower, right? There's a third there's a servicing company that will service that note and collect all the payments and escrow the taxes and insurance and put the money into your account. Think of it like a like a property manager, right? Mm-hmm. We're not, even dealing with, we're not even dealing with the borrower at any point in time. So, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a, you ever had a mortgage on a house? You're on a mortgage, okay? I don't care who it was with. Um, I just had mine with Bank of America. I just paid it off after 20 years. I finally got it paid off. Have you ever called, have you ever called the bank for anything relative to your house that you had the mortgage on?
1: No. And, and I actually would find it silly to do so.
2: Absolutely, it's a different <laughs> it's a different mentality, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you were the if you were a landlord, you would expect calls from tenants, right? But if you're the right, bank, right. you don't expect calls from owners because they're the owner of the property. It's their responsibility to take care of the leaky roof, or to to fix the foundation if it cracks, or you know replace the the H V A system if it goes out. Right, that's their responsibility. Their other responsibility as the owner of the property is to pay you the bank, whatever the agreed upon payment is on time every month. And if they don't, you have the right to get it back because that was the agreement. That's the beauty of notes. It's a securitized investment. It's secured by the actual property. You can't get that anywhere else. You can't, you go buy Amazon stock or Tesla stock. I use these examples all the time. Great stocks. If they go down 20% in value, either one of is, Elon or Bezos going to say, "Oh, I'm sorry. Here's, I'll make up the difference to you." Never going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. But you have the house as collateral, so even if the if the borrower stops paying and you have it an, and you're in a position to the leverage that you're going to get paid. Banks always get paid. Banks always. I don't want to say it again. Banks always get paid. They might not get paid today. They might not get paid tomorrow. They might not get paid for six months, but they will get paid because they have the house as collateral. Whereas if you're a landlord. And you have tenants, that that is not always gonna be the case. And I think we learned that in the last year of year and a half of COVID. There's a lot of landlords out there that are going, oh my goodness, I'm never gonna get my, I'm never gonna get my money because these these tenants have to some extent have taken have taken advantage of the system and they'll never be able to recover it because there's no financial liability or responsibility to the to the borrower or the tenant to pay the landlord. Now, can the landlord go get a judgment on it? Absolutely, but it doesn't mean they're gonna get paid on it. And that's the, mm-hmm. that's the fundamental difference. That's why I like being in the bank versus being um, a landlord, but to each their own.
1: So how long does this process typically take where you acquire the property, you get the, the note, you sell the note, and you carry the second back? How yeah. how long is typically, you even mentioned at one point, your notes are typically not seasoned, so you end up selling them for a slight discount.
2: Yeah, so because um, it's all about velocity for me and you know, it all. The answer is it depends, and it depends on what you do to the house. So think of it like, like two separate transactions. The first transaction is the buying and the fixing it. Maybe you don't have to fix it. Maybe you do. And then, how would you normally exit out of that first transaction? You would either maybe keep it and refinance it and and make it a a buy and hold and a rental property. You might turn around and sell it retail for a uh, for a profit, and What we're doing is we're doing up to that point, it's pretty much the same. The difference is that we're going to go to a buyer that needs financing versus somebody that, that, that needs seller financing versus somebody that can qualify for a traditional loan. So let me, that whole process, so you can make the first, that first part of the process as long or short as you want. Most of the stuff we're doing right now, we're not even fixing houses. We're just setting the price at the, at, the, at the value that we see it's that the market will dictate um, to set that, that exit. And so these properties now we're doing um, very minimal construction. Some houses we've done full gut jobs, but right now we're, we're trying to avoid that because it just isn't needed. And even though you might make the same amount of money by doing that, maybe you make a little bit more by doing the fix and flip. The problem is velocity. And what I mean by velocity is that I can get in and out of these deals in weeks if I don't do the construction versus months if I do. And when you take that same capital stack and you and you re, have the ability to reinvest it deal after deal after deal, if I'm doing construction, I might only get four turns a year with that capital if I'm lucky, right? But mm-hmm. if I'm not doing anything, I might get eight or 10. So even if I make a little bit less money, I can get, I'm going to monetize the the whole process. I'm going to get more money gross over the time with a lot less headache and a lot less physical work by doing it. So to answer your question, it depends on the front side, but from the note side. So when we get a buyer, as soon as we put that property up for sale, we get, we're going to, we, we're going to get buyers that are extremely um, interested in the property. Cause here's the reason why the last numbers and it depends on where your data sources come from but somewhere in the 60 to 70% number of the general population that that would that would go apply for a traditional bank loan would get de- would get denied or declined okay that's a huge mm-hmm. number okay so if you're telling me that only 30% of the population can go down to the bank and get a loan to buy the property Hey, rates are historically low right now. They're two and a half, three percent, whatever they are. Well, that's great if you can get it, right? But we know for a fact that the majority of the population can't get it. So where do they go? So what do they end up doing? Well, they can only do one of two things. They either got to find a seller that's willing to carry financing, or they don't buy. They have to be are they're they're, in, they're stuck in the rental pool. And we also know that eighty percent of renters rent because they have to not because they want to so when you look at economics 101 and the supply and demand of all this it's much better to be on the side of the of the that where your property and products and demand not the other way around and it's really hard to see that right now because it's such a seller's market but most real estate people that are in this space you're you're on both sides of the fence anyway right i'm a buyer before i'm a seller and then i'm a buyer again then I'm a seller. So the 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 landscape of real estate right now, I mean, it's indifferent to me whether it's a buyer or seller's market because I'm both. At the end mm-hmm. of the day, I prefer it actually in my model for it to be a buyer's market, not a seller's, because I have a lot less competition. uh, uh when I'm when I'm buying, if it's if it's if it's a buyer's model, I can actually I'll actually make as well as we do in a seller's market, we'll actually do much better when the market switch to buyers because that 70% is not going to go away. So.
1: Sure. So, you know, um, you mentioned that you have this uh, underwriting team that's, that's handling the underwriting portion to you. Like how much say do you have in that? Do you tell them like what's your requirements and they just stick to it? Or is it just kind of,
2: yeah, Something so we that- still follow. So, what happens? And I don't want to get into too much of the details on it. When Dodd Frank was established and Safe Act and all that stuff, they wrote this. They wrote these rules and guidelines that um, that if you're going to sell a property. Now, if you're only doing one or two of these, you don't need to use an RMLO or follow Dodd Frank or service a note or any of that stuff. We just choose to do it. Well, we well, we're required to do it because we do more than the minimum requirement, but even if I was only doing one or you were only going to do one, I would still recommend doing it because it's establishes best business practices. Mm-hmm. And it's really what you want because that, that underwriting, that that underwriting file that's created is a big factor in determining the value of the note when you go to sell it. And since we're selling this right away, we don't have, we don't have the performance history of the note on our side to, to fall back on. So we have to fall back on, the underwriting, and the property itself. So look at look, look at it this way for a second. Say, and I use this, I'm in Texas, so I use the, the Ford F-150 example, right? It's a truck, right? And they're both, you have two trucks and they're both 2015 builds. They're both white. They both have the same 50,000 miles on them. And on the surface, they appear to be the same. However, one truck has never had maintenance done on it. It's been beat to crap. The kids have drawn- all over the back seat with, with pen. Um, It's, it's, uh, it's never been maintained. And the other one, same truck, same miles, but it's in pristine condition. All the service records are impeccable. And it's only been, only one person's been in that truck the whole time. No one's ever sat in the back seat and so on that you can, you understand the value on those two trucks is entirely different based on the condition. Mm -hmm. Well, notes are no different. The condition of the note is the same. So the underwriting file is important. You know, did did you take uh did you take an application when you when you sold it to the borrower, or did you not? Did you verify who they say they were, or did you not? Are you servicing the note with a, with, a, or are you collecting cash payments? All those factors and all those conditions um, help establish the risk. Of that note, right? Because what you when you when you sell a note, you're selling it based on the value, the return, but more importantly, the risk that's associated with that note, based on who the borrower is, with the property where the property is located, and so on. So those are all in, in, integral parts of determining the true value of the note. And now, once you have servicing in place and the note's been performing for a long period of time. A lot of that stuff goes away because really then the performance is the true indicator in most note buyers eyes on really what the value is. So that's really the reason why we do it. But if you're going to stay in the deal long term, like we are, and you're going to hold that second note, even though there's no cost basis to it, I want the note to be written as as best as possible because that's my, that's my cash flow and that's my investment that I'm getting the most my return on.
1: Mm-hmm. No, this is like I said, this is really interesting. So if, if people head over, headed over to your website, that usanotepro.com, would they find some of these resources? Yeah. So like-
2: actually there's a couple of eBooks on there and it talks about selling notes. Okay. So because we buy notes all the time and we want to educate people if they're going to sell a note, what they need to have in place. And it talks it talks about these same things but just think of it on a, a, a different and through a different lens is that if you're selling a note then you understand what the buyer wants Well, if you're buying the note then you understand what the seller needs to provide so even though it's written from a seller's perspective it's it's no different if you're the buyer just change the the, the interpretation of the of the of the information from a buyer's perspective it says you should have the file stack. Well, if you're a buyer, then guess what you should be doing. You should make sure that the file is stacked with all that data that you'd want, or you're going to, you're not going to buy it for that price. And if you're going to sell at the same difference. So uh, yeah, there's some stuff out there. We got a lot of, there's some other videos and some other things like that. I think at the end of the day, it's just, um, you really just need to understand that there's another way to monetize deals. Where other people that have said it can't be done, we work with wholesalers all the time, and um, and I had this, I have these conversations, and I was just presenting a, a week or so ago, and I was talking to a wholesaler, and he was pretty proud of himself, and I asked him, I go, what is your what is your conversion rate, like, how many deals do you get, like, from all the motivated sellers? He goes, we get about twenty percent. I go, that's pretty, good. I go, that's pretty impressive, because I used to wholesale, mm-hmm. I never was at twenty percent. No, you know, and I think in this marketplace, if you're somewhere between eight and twelve, it's pretty—it's a pretty good thing. So I asked him. I go, twenty percent—that's pretty high. That's pretty high. He goes, and he was pretty proud of himself. I go, I go, good. So how many deals did you do last year? He goes, we did about a hundred. I did the math in my head real quick. I go, if you did a hundred deals and you got twenty percent of them, that must mean that you had five hundred sellers. He goes, yeah, we, we we were pretty busy. We got about seven or eight acquisition guys we're hustling out there. I go, that's great. And I go, I go, well, what happened to the other 400 deals? He goes, what do you mean what happened to the other 400 deals? I go, where are they? He goes, well, we didn't get them. I go, why didn't you get them? He goes, we didn't get them because the seller didn't accept our cash offer. And I said, well, that's your problem. Okay. What if you were able to accept the seller's asking price versus having the seller accept your cash offer? See the difference? Mm-hmm. And so, and we can do that. And when you have this strategy in mind, you can leverage the underlying debt. You can pay a little bit more because you're going to get paid in time in the back end. At the end of the day, sometimes we make cash. So let me ask you a question. If you can make, if it if it costs you, and I'm not saying you would do this, but if you, well, you should do this. I'm just asking the question
1: because
2: <laughs> there's a different line in the sand for everybody. If I told you, you can make, Two hundred fifty dollars a month for, for thirty years, okay. And the mm-hmm. interest rate is ten and a half percent. And if they, and it's amortized, and you could get a, and you would get a lump sum payoff if they ever pay that off early, uh, whatever the balance is. How much cash would you put into that deal? Would you put five hundred dollars to make two hundred fifty dollars a month? No, oh, yeah, of course you would. Yeah. Would you put three thousand dollars of cash into doing it? Yeah, probably would if you had three thousand dollars cash. You know, at some point you, you say, no, no more, right? You say no more, it's not worth me doing it. See, and that's the question that you get asked. So even though I, the, the example I showed you, I actually netted $15,000, but I very easily could have paid $5,000 and done the same thing. And I would have got, you know, if I would have take, let's say I take $5,000, I'm just using that as a round number. I divide that by 250, that's 20 months. So it's a little less than two years. So if I would as invest, so am I willing to invest $5,000, get all my money back in 20 months, and then have the remaining uh, 340 payments of 250 come in free and clear? Sounds like it's a pretty good investment to me. Oh, mm-hmm. by the way, I have, I have the property as collateral in the event that the borrower decides not to pay me. I can foreclose, I can go get cash for keys. I can get a deed in lieu. There's a lot of things I can do to protect my investment. So that's a question that you have that, that you can ask yourself. So in that my where I'm going with this is on that deal, I could have, in theory, if I was willing to pay five thousand dollars for that, in theory, I could have paid an additional twenty thousand dollars to acquire that property, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I made 15 doing the the deal that I did, and I would be willing to pay five, and then in theory, I could have paid twenty thousand dollars more. Well, that's exactly how you get some of these deals in that that above that 20% mark is because you just pay a little bit more because you know you're gonna get it back out on the back end, you know, in a in a you know, you know, you asked a time frame on it. Most of the stuff that I'm doing I'm using in and out of it between 30 and 45 days. That's my mm-hmm. number. Now, if I'm doing a heavy rehab, you know, it's gonna take longer, but I'm gonna find that buyer. I'm going to find a buyer usually within three to five days and I'm going to be able to take them and get them underwritten in about 10 days. And then I'm going to be, I'm going to cash out of that about another week after that when I sell the note, because what I'm going to do is I'm running them concurrently. I'm selling and shopping that note based on what I know the borrower um, file looks like. And I've already have the buyer already uh, lined up before I even get to that point.
1: Well, it, it seems like we almost need a part two because there's There's, you could a, do that. there's so, a whole there's a whole discussion here regarding identifying that that buyer and you know uh,
2: yeah so I'll say a couple of things on that because I think I because that's because you don't it's always the fear of the unknown, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't know that you can actually go get a buyer so how am I gonna go find an owner finance buyer, how am I gonna get them to pay me nine and a half or ten percent from my mortgage? Well, you don't unless you know, you know somebody that's that's already done it, and you have a proven track record that can show, you know, all these transactions. But here's a really simple test: I don't. If you're a landlord or you have a house, just go put it, just go post it on Facebook Marketplace, and say seller financing available to well-qualified borrower with down payment, and fig, and be prepared for your your messenger to blow up, your email to blow up, your phone to blow up. Because the number of people, we already talked about it, 70% can't qualify through a traditional means. So that means 70%, if they want to be a buyer, may have to use some other source to get the deal done. That's The, the buyers are there. That's not the problem. The buyers are not the problem. The other thing is, is that what, what people fail to understand is how big the seller carry market is, okay? We, you know... Um and when I mean by seller carry, I'm talking about seller financing of, of businesses, single family homes, land, whatever that aren't financed through Chase, Wells, Fargo Bank of America, the big traditional lenders, okay? And that number is about 25 billion dollars a year. That's billion with a B, okay? That's not a that's not a small amount. So there's a lot of people out there that create financing and and there's but, but that they, that know that they can do that. But more importantly, there's a lot of people, you ask a hundred people that they know they can create their own seller financing and carry the note and be the bank, 99 out of hundred are going to say no. And probably it's probably even less than that, to be quite honest with you. They just don't know that they can do it. So it's just not a they can they can do it. The other thing people don't know, they can just go buy notes. A lot of people don't know they can even go buy mortgage notes. Um, from companies like us or on the market, just like you would go buy a house and you'd pay cash for it in a wholesale. You can go buy notes just the same, but people don't even understand that because they don't even know that it even exists. So there's plenty of ways that you can materially participate in the note side, either by buying them uh, from uh, a broker or directly from a seller or creating them yourself.
1: Well, uh, you know, before I let you go, there was just so much information here. I know it's
2: crazy. I, I,
1: I and like I said, we, we could easily do a part two because there's, there's, I'm just scratching the tip of the iceberg of the num- number of questions I actually have for you. But I always like leaving people with like one actionable item. So if they were looking to get into this, what would you suggest would be the first thing they do to, uh,
2: yeah. So I think the question would be, is, uh, um If they're a, you know, if they're a landlord, then they can look at it if they want to, they're a landlord and they're trying to decide if they want to continue to be a landlord instead of selling that property is maybe turning into an owner finance deal. That would be one thing that would be I would at least uh, exercise that um, possibility. Mm-hmm. But if you're a real estate investor and you're a wholesaler and you know and you're not able to get all those deals done, go back to the seller, and ask them this a very simple question, you know. And I'll use the example that I already said. I'm at one hundred twenty thousand dollars on my offer. You need one thirty. If I was able to come up to your price, would you be willing to um, maybe take some cash now and some later? Would you be in, Would you be interested in uh, entertaining a creative a creative deal a financing structure? And leave it at that. Because if we can utilize that debt that's already in place and you can eliminate the need to go and borrowing, you can pay a little bit more for it. And then it's just going on and creating the deal. So, you know, you can always, they can always go to USA Note Pro if they have a deal that's questionable, they can submit it through the, through the, there's a, um, through the wholesaler helper link. There's a link that they can put in and put some deal information in there. And you know we'd be happy to look at them, and we even buy we even buy those dead leads. So if they're dead to them, we'll come in, and we know we can structure a deal creatively. We'll pay them we'll pay them a fee for it, and they don't even have to even materially participate in the actual deal. But they can get paid on deals that they thought were dead. And make, make additional money and, you know, help offset some of their cost and overhead. So just just education is the biggest thing is like, just know, understand that there's more than one way to do a real estate transaction. And depending on where you are in your real estate career, um, you don't have to do any of this your own. There's plenty of people that you can partner with that will help you do it and split the deal. You know, for me, it's all about collaboration, not competition. And I, I, I'm a firm believer in collaboration because at the end of the day, the ocean is massive. The ocean is massive and there's plenty in the ocean for everybody. And I don't need to be, the, the I don't need to control it all, nor do I want to control it all. And I thoroughly enjoy helping people get deals done where they thought they couldn't get them done and get paid on them and, and, and go from there. So I hope that answers your question.
1: Yeah, no, that does. And, you know, I think if anything got people's attention is that, that little example that you provided where you were getting about $250 a month for 30 years, um, that should be a standout because typically, especially for a single family home, I think a lot of people are seeing $250, $300 a month as net rental income. You know, that's it, true, with all it's, the risk. That's, it, there's There's not much difference there. And the big difference there is, you're removing yourself having to be the landlord.
2: Absolutely, and the risk and a liability and a bunch of other things, and uh, you know, and not now all not all deals are the same, not all markets are the same, and you just have to model it out. And we actually have a a calculator, and if they go to the USA No Pro, I think it's on there, and if not, they can ask for it. And you know, it's a little modeling calculator. I know there's some videos on her on how to how to put the numbers in and, and see what the outcome is gonna be. But the key to the the key to this model, by and I can't say this enough, is you have to structure the deal correctly from the beginning to get the maximum return on that note. And the way that you do that is by underwriting the borrower, which is done through a through a RMLO and by servicing the note and then finding, and then finding a, the, the note buyer that it will pay you the, the appropriate amount for that for that note. And we so, can help with all three of those.
1: So, well, I appreciate it. This is, this was just a great conversation, Nick. I want to point everybody again to your website, usanotepro.com. You can find a ton of information and resources there, uh, but you're always welcome back. we would love to chat with hey, you again you sometime. Know, you
2: know, uh, and you know, the other cool thing that we're started, that we started doing, it's a, uh, and I think it'll be on the website as well. It's called, we do uh, once, to, once or twice a week, we do a, a live, uh, live online. It's called deal or no deal. And we take these deals that, that people bring into us and we look at them and say, okay, is this a deal or no deal from a creative, from a creative struct for structuring standpoint, not whether they should buy it as a wholesale or a fix and flip. Cause I could care less about that. Quite honestly, we want to know if, it, if the deal works creatively and how we would we structure? Like, how would you take the no, how would you take the property down? Would you fix it or would you not fix it? And would and how would you exit out of it? And what would you do it? And how would you how do you, you know, what's the economic impact or, on doing the deal? How much cash can you make today? How much cash flow can you make for how long? And how, and what's the lump sum payout? And we do that, and we we they you know people submit their the the deals based on some of the criteria we ask, and we go through them live and. Sometimes they are their deals and sometimes they're not. But usually, usually we can figure out a way to make it a deal um, and make it work um, if we get cooperation from from the sellers. The sellers is ultimately the bottom line.
1: Right. No, that I I, when uh, first starting real estate investing, that was the number one way to learn was to actually see examples and go through an actual example.
2: And I learn a lot by doing it because sometimes questions come up I don't know the answer to and I don't know everything I'm never going to say I'm going to and it forces me to go out and find the answer to the question and I come back and I do it so it helps by by interacting and, and doing these kind of uh, these kind of uh, uh, examples uh, it really helps expand my learning and my my knowledge base as well um, which inevitably helps other people out as well yeah. Well,
1: Nick, this was this is again great. Head over to usa pro note pro usa note pro
2: usa pro might be something that nobody wants to go visit. I have, Yeah, no,
1: yeah, no, not I, me. I appreciate that correction.
2: <laughs> All right, man. That,
1: I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All
2: right, JD. Thank you.
0: This has been the REI Mastermind Network. You can already tell that we've made some changes, and a few more are on the way. If you are interested in what we have planned head over to patreon.com rei Mastermind and support the show today. Financial contributions are always appreciated along with a like, share, and review. It really helps us grow and reach more people with this valuable information. See you next time and tell a friend.